Welcome to Roadhouse Minute, the podcast where we review the best bad movie of all time, Roadhouse, and where we always try to be nice until it's time not to be nice. I'm Roger. I'm Marcy. And this is another in an ongoing series of special episodes in the Roadhouse Cinematic Universe. Um, we are going to continue our, uh, some would say, blessedly short tour down Kelly Lynch Lane um, with our second entry uh, in our series, which is the 1989 film Drugstore Cowboy. And back again to talk about it with us, which I, with, in, in what is, I think, going to be a very spirited conversation, is one of our best guests from the Roadhouse movie proper. Um, you may remember him from the diner scene. Uh, it's he is the a, a veteran podcast host of such things as Spinal Tap Minute, Groundhog Minute, Five Minutes of Mime. It's Sean German. How are you doing, Sean? Fantastic. Very, very glad to be here. Very excited to uh so yeah, take this this walk down Kelly Lynch Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about this movie because Sean, but when we before we came on, you were talking about how much you enjoyed getting a chance to rewatch this movie. And Marcy and I watched it for the very first time. Uh, what, Marcy, last week? Was that right? Yep. Last week? Yep, last Wednesday. And mm-hmm. let's just say, wow. let's just say it was not one of our favorites. Um, okay. So it's... Uh, I'm curious as to why somebody would like this movie. <laughs> I so. am too. It kind of feels like, Sean, have you ever seen the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Yes. The, yeah. the Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, <laughs> yeah. we're losing it. So, Marcy, do you remember yeah. when we watched that movie? Yes, we did not like it at we, all. So we hated it, whereas I think yeah. most of like the rest of the internet thinks that it's one of the best movies of all time. And so maybe this is a case of just a movie where we don't get it, um, but I'm dying to dig into what we liked about this movie, yeah. what we didn't like about this movie. But let's start, Marcy, as we always do, with the IMDb summary of Drugstore Cowboy. Uh, what do you think, Marcy? One sentence or two? I think it's a one sentence synopsis. You're right. So here's yes. drugstore, here's drugstore <laughs> cowboy listeners. Uh, a pharmacy robbing dope fiend and his crew pop pills and evade the law. Hey. Doesn't that sound like a comedy? <laughs> what a bad summary. You, you that... mean it's not? <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. It's it I mean no, it's not a comedy, but it's a good film. And that but and that does sum it up pretty well. Okay, well, tell you what, right. let's let's dive into talking about because I have some questions, but maybe we should just start with um, sort of our first takes on this movie. So, Sean, you you said this is a good movie. Tell us, sort of, just to kind of start off with, like, what do you like most about Drugstore Cowboy? What do I like most? And I just, oh, I do want to say, I'm, I'm looking. I, I do want to hear your takes as someone. As viewing it for the first time now, because the world has changed so much. This is, well, it's set in 1971, and it's based on like a semi-autobiographical book. It's it's a book that was written in prison by a junkie, uh, by a dope fiend who went around robbing pharmacies. So there's a um, an autobiographical aspect of it from the late 60s and early 70s, and then was released in 1989, which is a world away from 1971, and then now in um, as as you're listening to this podcast, is decades away from 1989. And what we know and what we think about opioids is certainly much different now than it was then. Um, so that may, you know, so interested to see, you know, how, how that colors your impression. But so what did I like about it? I think um, 
I, I, I like Gus Van Sant. He's kind of, he's sneaky because he doesn't immediately come to mind when I think of sort of the great contemporary directors. But then I start looking at the films he's made and I, I've enjoyed every one of them that I've seen. Um, the look, the feel, there's like a grittiness. It, it feels um, like the, the color palette, like sort of the, the design of the film, like it feels, um, you know, it feels early seventies. It feels like 1971. I like that. I like Matt Dillon. I think he does a great job. Um, I like uh, William S. Burroughs playing uh, Father Tom, kind of the old, the old attic. And and when I first saw this, um, I don't think I saw this in the theater, but um I probably like as soon as it hit home video, as soon as it hit HBO or as soon as we could rent it, I saw it soon after. And I was just coming out of a um, I went through sort of a beat generation phase as a teenager. I, you know, read Kerouac and Ginsburg and almost everything um, that Ken Kesey, almost all the fiction Ken Kesey has ever written. Um, you know, I read while I was in high school I'd read Nick, Naked Lunch, of course. So just seeing William S. Burroughs was uh you know, a, a tree and just kind of thinking why I enjoyed it so much when I first saw it. And it was, um, you know, I was just kind of a, a, an ordinary middle-class suburban kid. So a peek into this life, even, um, you know, the, the dramatic license taken as you know, film, I realize it's not, it's not autobiographical. It's not a, a documentary. Um, but, you know, just kind of a peek into that outlaw, uh, dope fiend on the run sort of lifestyle was, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit romantic, a little bit exciting. Um, so I, and I think I, I hold on to some of that, what I would think about this film now, if I saw it, I, I still think I would like it if I saw it now for the first time, but I do recognize like some of it is nostalgia and thinking back to, to seeing it, you know, for the first time as a teenager, but I just, I, I do think it's really well done. It's well directed and, and shot. Um, and I think Matt Dillon just does, uh, you know, a career performance is, is so good. And, um, and some, you know, some of the supporting cast is good as well. We'll say that. That's interesting that um, we, we, you, you kind of hit on exactly why I think people might have loved this movie when it came out, because I feel like it could have been a pivotal movie that showed us something different that we hadn't seen before. And so at this point, seeing, you know, dope fiends going after their hit and trying to kind of be, um, you know, sneaking around and evading the law, it's like really done. And we know a lot about it, but I feel like, maybe when it came out, it was a glimpse into a world that people didn't know very much about. And so it is kind of like a groundbreaking film in that way. Um, yeah, it's certainly possible. One of the things that I read and, you know, so Sean, that's great. You've given us so much to unpack. Um, I, I think, I think probably it is an issue of maybe timing when we watch the movie and Marcy to, to speak to what you said, you know, I read somewhere that um, like Premier Magazine listed, listed this in, in 1998. So that's about a decade after they included it in this feature called 100 Movies That Shook the World. And they called it uh, one of the most daring movies ever, ever made. Um, so maybe maybe it was just very groundbreaking for 1989. It's kind of I mean, I don't know if Sean, I don't know if how familiar you are with this movie. I feel like I get some 
like I get a lot of easy rider energy from mm-hmm. this movie. And I feel like maybe the critics, because by the way, this movie was loved by the critics. Okay. This is this is the uh best picture and best director of that year from the National Association of Film Critics. And I feel like a lot of them, this is their easy rider, like 20 years later. Yeah. And like uh, Independent Spirit Award for Matt Dillon and Best Screenplay and uh, New York Film Critics and L.A. Film Critics, you know. So, yeah, this was like the indie darling of the time. I'm going to I'm going to. But so I guess I guess I guess lacking the context, you know, watching this movie as a someone in their late 40s in a time like Marcy said, where we're, we've got distance from this time and place. I, I did not think that this movie was well put together, honestly. And, and in particular, I, I, I felt like both the screenplay and the way that the, the scenes were acted by most of the people in this movie just felt so clunky. Okay. okay. Am I, I mean, may, I'd be happy to be, talked out of that but just like there were Mar- marcy there were so many there were so many scenes where you and i looked at each other like like the delivery the what did they lines, just the you know it's just it all didn't come together in a really smooth way like if you told me that this was gus van sant's second feature film by the way i love gus van sant i love goodwill hunting i think he's a great director but if you told me that this was his second movie i would have said yep that seems about right. Yeah. I know I think this this kind of belongs to a a classification of movies like movies that don't really have a plot. Um and and it and it works. You know, if if it's one of those things where, you know, if if you're good, you're good. And like you don't really have to follow the rules. And usually they're comedies. I mean, the, the two that come to mind are uh, immediately for me are Caddyshack and Animal House. Like Animal House, it's just a bunch of scenes. It's just a bunch of guys in a frat and it's just a, you know, a slice of their life, but there isn't really a plot. It's just a bunch of disconnected scenes. And then at the end, they kind of pull together some double secret probation to kind of give it a thing. And Caddyshack's the same way. It's a a slice of life. It's the, you know, the the rich people and the poor people. Uh, It's, you know, the upstairs downstairs thing on a golf course with the caddies and the rich members. And then at the end, they throw together, oh, some storyline about like this big match and this giant bet and something to just kind of give it an ending. But there really isn't a plot. There really isn't a story other than rich golfers and and poor uh, caddies there. And this is kind of the, the, the same way where it's like, it's just a series of scenes showing you the life of these junkies. And then at the end, it's, they, they kind of pull together, you know, they, they kind of pull out a plot at the end, but um, you know, sometimes life doesn't have a plot. So I, you know, it's, you know, again, if, if you make a good film um, you know, I think Spielberg made a remark and this, this came up in the Indiana Jones minute, another great podcast um, talked about like, you know, some of the effects um, or, you know, some of the action sequences and Raiders of the Lost Ark really don't, don't work if you think about it. And someone mentioned it to Spielberg and the, the story is his response was if, if the audience notices that we failed, like just there's supposed to be so much fun and so much action going on, you know, that they don't notice that like in one scene, one of the major supporting actors is replaced by a, like a hat on top of a broomstick. You know, it's, <laughs> it's those things. Like if you notice that, then the whole thing has failed. Like if you notice that, these scenes don't really work together then, then yeah, it's, it's a failure. And I will note like one thing, the, the, the subplot with the cop with Gentry, with the law that's chasing them, 
that that never pays off. Um, you know, that there really isn't it doesn't go anywhere. You know, they, there isn't like a big arrest at the end or, or anything like that. Um, you know, so you could say like, why, why have that character? Why have that little bit? Um, it's a little bit of a, just, it kind of kicks off. I guess it gives them an excuse. Well, why do these junkies decide to go on the road? Why do they spend most of the movie driving around? Well, it's because the cops are after them. So, but, but then the cop comes back for some reason with like, when he's, he's already served his, purpose as far as the plot concerned you know he, he did his narrative device in terms of getting them moving there's no reason for him to come back later um so i mean, I mean it's not it's not above critique but I i'm, just, o- I love it I'm anyway. okay with movies that don't necessarily have a plot it wasn't lack mm-hmm. of plot that bothered me about this movie i mean like you know and, and you're right like i'm i'm fine with movies that are sort of the day in the life of x so i'll just throw it as a as another example like Doug Lyman's swingers, you know, here's, here's what life is like for struggling actors in Los Angeles. And I, I think that movie is a hundred times better than this one. And it's because I feel like it's got a tight script and it's got really excellent performances. This movie, I felt like there were so many scenes where the dialogue was clunky and it was delivered it was delivered in just sort of very wooden ways by by this cast who I, like I think this cast is great. So Marcy, we've seen most of the people in this cast. I, I, I mean, I would say, Marcy, have you seen every all of the four actors in this movie like in other things before? Oh uh, yeah, definitely Heather Graham and lots of things. Kelly Lynch, obviously. Kelly Lynch, obviously. James Lagrosse, who I think is great. Um, we saw him. He was one of the uh, Patrick Swayze's henchman in Point Break. So we've actually seen oh, him yeah. on this yeah. podcast. Right. Um, and then I, maybe Matt Dillon is probably the one person you've seen the least. He's in, uh, you, you might've seen him in There's Something About Mary. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like I have seen all of these actors in what I think are better performances in other movies. Yeah, um, I don't know that... Um... Well, I feel like Kelly Lynch is always underserved in all the movies that she gets into. And this is another place where I feel like she doesn't really get really great lines or there's something about how she's delivering them that just feels very stilted and not smooth in a way. Um, And, you know, maybe like part of that is that she's supposed to be a drug addict and she's high. And maybe that is the way that she's going to behave because she's high. But um, I don't know. She she never strikes me as a very smooth or comfortable actress. Yeah, so maybe this would be a good time to talk about Kelly Lynch. She's obviously mm-hmm. our connection to Roadhouse. And now we've seen her in three movies at least. Um how would so Sean, have you seen the 1988 cinematic classic cocktail? I have. I have not rewatched it since that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Since it's, last century. But yes, I have it, seen it. Yeah. It's very slight. So Marcy, how would you compare Kelly Lynch in Drugstore Cowboy to Kelly Lynch in Cocktail? Well, I think in Drugstore Cowboy, at least she kind of has some power in the situation. Like she seems like she's, um, you know, in the two power positions of the lead characters, right? And kind of driving some of that the action and the reason why they're moving around and doing different things. Um, in the other movie in cocktail, like we learned, she, most of the reason why she exists got cut out of the movie. So she's just kind of like 
a piece of eye candy at some point and doesn't really have any character development or um, a good sense of why the things that happened to her happened to her. And what about, so for either one of you, um, how would you compare Kelly Lynch in this movie? Because apparently this was the movie that caught um, Joel Silver's eye and led to her being cast in Roadhouse. How do we feel about um, Kelly Lynch in Drugstore Cowboys compared to Kelly Lynch in Roadhouse? I like her better in Roadhouse, personally, because I, yeah. I, I think I just like her character better. I think she's, yeah, she, that's a better part. I do think she's better in, in Roadhouse. I think it's an interesting contrast for an actress. You know, they're, I think, much different parts. But to a certain extent, it's she's a prop. She's there for Matt Dillon to play off of. Uh, I mean, I think all, all the, the three other actors in that crew, like they, none of those are really great parts. They're, they're there for, um, you know, to serve Matt Dillon, to serve Bob. Um, so it, it is really a bit part. She doesn't get a ton to work with. I think it's fair to say she doesn't do a lot with it, but I think that's also, I, I did chalk that up to some of it's the role. Some of it is the, the, that character, Diane is, is annoying and needy. And, uh, you know, and yeah, she's, she's someone, I don't know. I wonder at times, like, why does Bob put up with her? It's just kind of, they're comfortable. They grew up together, even if they don't have a lot in common or really like each other much at this point, they're just, it's, you know, convenience and, um, you know, they, they're both addicts. So they're, you know, they both have the same goal of, of looking for the next fix. So it's kind of, um, you know, a marriage of convenience to a certain extent. So, because um, yeah, so some of it I chalked it up to that's kind of the character, and then some of it, yeah, I think is fair to say, um, you know, it isn't like um, you know, this isn't someone who has had a career of masterful performances that this stands out as like <laughs> the one, the one miss on an otherwise spotless resume. So um, I was we, really we looking at all on the writing. I was really looking forward to seeing her in this movie. And I would say to her credit, I feel like she probably has the most agency in this movie as compared to the other two. Mm-hmm. I was looking forward to seeing her in a role where she could be a little, um, dirtier isn't the right word, but like, this is like a grittier role for her. This is a role where she's Mm -hmm. willing to sort of be unattractive, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, certainly you can say about cocktail. Um, and I would, I would argue you could say the same thing about roadhouse that, you know, her, her goal, her, her job in most scenes is to be very attractive. Is it possible that she just doesn't do a particularly good job of delivering her lines? I mean, I don't know. I've seen her in three performances now and haven't been impressed with her performances in any of them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's mean to say. Marcy, what do you think? Uh, I, yeah, I agree with you. I feel like three performances is maybe enough evidence to say, you know, she's either not getting material that she can work with or she can't work with the material. Sean, do you have you seen Kelly Lynch? Yeah, I must admit, I haven't seen, other than these three things, those are probably the three things that I've ever seen her in. Are there other things you've seen Kelly Lynch in? Like, if I asked you what her, Kelly Lynch's best performance that you've ever seen is, what would you say? <laughs> I'm like, just can, trying, yeah. I'm can you think of anything what... better than that? I'm trying to think of other things that I would be like, oh, I bet that's great. Um, I don't know, I'd have, to, I'd have to, Marcy, you watched the TV show The L Word for a while, right? Didn't you? 
Oh gosh, is she in that? That she was is. so long ago that she, I watched that. She has she had a recurring role in that series. I feel like maybe I need to go back and rewatch her in that. Maybe she does better on in like on TV. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. She's I guess I'm trying I'm like looking through the stuff she's done. Apparently she was in Charlie's Angels in 2000. I have no memory oh. hmm. of her being that. She was in Virtuosity in 95. I have no memory of her in that. Um and her then a IMDb. bunch of other stuff I haven't seen. Yeah, her IMDb is is littered with movies that I've never heard of. Yeah. Um, so, and that you know that that could that could speak for itself. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, I, but you know, getting back to one thing that you said, Sean, I do think that Matt Dillon is pretty great in this movie. Like, if if I had to praise this movie for one thing, it would probably be the acting performance of Matt Dillon throughout. Do you yeah. all have a, a favorite scene or favorite? like scenario that they get themselves into. I know my favorite scene. Um, what would you say, Sean? A favorite scene. Probably. Um, and this kind of leads to a, to a question that I had for, for you, both of you. Um, the, the scene where they hit the drugstore um, when they're just walking down the street and then Bob stops and he says, did you see, what does he say? Did you see that? You didn't see the open uh, transom. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and then that you know that that sequence of they they uh, you know robbing that drugstore and then and then heading back to the I guess the hotel where they were staying or motel at the time. And my my question was before seeing this film, did you know what a transom was? <laughs> I mean, I know what a transom is. It's the back of a boat. I've never heard somebody call one of those little windows on top of a door the transom. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't yeah. think a transom was that. Yeah, I had never heard of a transom before seeing the film, but yeah, That's now I know what a transom is. Yeah. Seems like junkie lingo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll tell you what my, my favorite scene is. Um, and, you know, I would also say I think it's probably one of Kelly Lynch's strongest scenes. I really like the scene. toward It's toward the end of the movie after Bob has gone back to Portland to get himself cleaned up. Or Seattle, sorry, not Portland. Um, I really like the scene where Diane Kelly Lynch comes to his, you know, flop house apartment with that bag full of drugs. Cause she's still in the game and drops it off. And essentially this is like, this is their farewell. Cause like mm-hmm. she's sort of trying to like suck him back into the world of, um, of, you know, drugs. And he's, you know, six of his guns and says, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And they, they just sort of have like, they, they reach an understanding. I think they both, I think that's one of both of their stronger performances in that movie. Mm -hmm. So what about you, Mars? What's your favorite scene? Um, I really like the whole sequence where they're at the motel and they decide they're going to hide their drugs in the ceiling, you know, a few, a few rooms down, and then they have this dead body they've got to deal with. And then they (laughs) hide the dead body in the ceiling. And then the whole thing about like getting her up into the ceiling is kind of ridiculous, but it's more ridiculous when they have to get her back down. And the Matt Dillon character is lowering this body, expecting that Kelly Lynch is going to help at all. And it just falls right to the ground. Yeah. 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 I, I have questions, which is why would you go to the painstaking efforts? And they say this out loud. We're like, we're going to make sure that we hide it over the top of other rooms in the motel but we'll just hide this dead body right above our head 
Yeah. They're really like, not thinking through like priorities. And well, I someone kinda... might notice that someone might notice a dead body. Like it's going to start to smell at some point yeah. if it's above another room. Right. Plus so, it's a lot harder to move. Than... No, but yeah. that's the thing that you need to be hiding above somebody else's yeah. room, not yeah. the drugs. <laughs> I really like how the, the, the drama of just being surrounded slowly by the police cars mm-hmm. unfolds and they're, ability to think clearly gets worse and worse and their decision making gets worse and worse. And it just goes from one really bad thing to another. And all of a sudden now they have this dead body and the hat thing, the like no hats on a bed is just like crazy superstition stuff. I I found a piece of trivia about this. Maybe you found this out too, Sean, when you were doing your research, apparently that's an homage to a classic noir movie called Shield for Murder mm-hmm. from 1954 is what I've heard. That a hat on the bed means, I guess, someone's going to die. Or it, mm-hmm. it brings you bad luck. But the, mm-hmm. They can't stop talking about like bad luck in this movie. Yeah, so now, so like, are you now, will you now never put a hat on a bed? Are you going to subscribe to that superstition? I'm not superstitious about anything. Yeah. I think that's right. ridiculous, but I'm also not stoned like these people are all the time. <laughs> I don't. And and I, since seeing this film, uh, you know, oh, 30 plus years ago, I will not stand a hat on a bed and, and just not like what's going to happen. Why? What does it mean? I don't know. But why take the chance? Wow. I just I'm not going to take the chance. <laughs> Are you superstitious about anything else or is this the extent of it? That's that's it. That's pretty much the extent of it. I will walk under a ladder. I will step on a crack. I. Uh, you know, yeah, but I will, I will not, I do not abide a hat on a bed. And how old were one. you when you saw this movie for the first time? I was like 18, 19. Impressionable. Mm-hmm. Impressionable youth. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask something, uh, going back to the scene that you mentioned, Roger, uh, I think it was Roger, that that the, um, when Diane comes back at the end or towards the end to kind of with that bag of, of drugs for Bob. Um, and this is good. So you both first saw this, uh, you know, for the first time recently. Um, what did you did you suspect that was a setup? Did you think she was kind of planting the drugs? So then, you know, maybe like, you know, while they're out on the road, you know, she's kidding, you know, Bob's trying to clean up. She's out on the road. She's still doing the crime thing. She's still stealing for drugs um, without Bob. You know, Bob was always sort of the brains of the operation. So I don't think it's it's a it's a stretch to think maybe they got busted and maybe the cops maybe she cut a deal said hey you plant this these drugs on bob so we can bust him and we'll let you go did you did that thought enter your head at all it didn't enter my head at the time but i'm not gonna lie at that part in the at that point in the movie my engagement level had was was pretty low um what what about you mars you know, I thought really what she was trying to do in that scene was win him back and just get him back into her game with her. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, he she thought like they have this connection. She wants to reconnect and get him hooked on drugs again. Yeah. If I had to guess anything, that's what I would have guessed, too, that she she know she just assumes like you know a leopard doesn't change his spots if i leave a bag mm-hmm. of drugs with bob for long enough he's gonna yeah. succumb he's to temptation I, I was really surprised that she was able to bring those drugs into the building because i kind of got the impression that he was staying at some sort of halfway house 
that had, remember he had that interview with the woman that was very yeah. strict at the yeah. beginning. And, you know, I, I thought maybe there would be somebody checking who was visiting and what they were bringing in. I mean, I don't think it's that serious. And I think yeah. these people have, these people are lifetime junkies. I think if anybody knows how to hide drugs on their body, it's mm. Diane. But I mean, I think I'm assuming this is the kind of place where they just have rules that say, like, if we find you um, intoxicated, you're out the next day. Mm -hmm. I think I think the onus is on the residents to stay clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Now, it's interesting that if if, you know, if Diane's trying to kind of get him back into the life or get him back on drugs, but then she flatly turns him down when he, you know, asks her to stay the night, whereas like that would give her and I and Drug addicts relapse, and, and and Bob says that you know if if someone wants to use, you can't talk them out of it. Um, and yeah, if you leave a junkie around a bag of drugs like long enough, eventually they're going to break down and, and relapse. But it seems like more likely, you know, if she spends the night and she spends some time with him, and like maybe she starts using in front of him, like if she really wanted to get him, you know, kind of back in back in that way, um, like so why you know why why did why wouldn't she stay? Yeah. I thought it was really interesting um, to see how different pharmacies were in the past. (laughs) Like literally a wooden drawer that you can pull all the way out and it's got Mm -hmm. like the worst opioids in the world in there. Yeah. And you just like dump them out into your hand. Yeah. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah. The world of opioids has changed a lot a lot in in the 50 years since the 1971 where this is set yeah i mean there's no well there's no security cameras there's no like electronic security of any type and yeah it's just in a wooden drawer you can just if you can get behind the counter you have uh you know yeah. and you know what to look for you have your pick of uh pick of the litter there i mean we can't even buy things like cough Sudafed. medicine <laughs> with yeah Sudafed yeah. without your driver's license yeah. being scanned that's that's ridiculous. wild yeah what do you all think sort of along this kind of continuing this conversation about sort of like this sliding doors moment for the two of them? Like, uh, this is a question they ask on the Rewatchables podcast. It's like, you know, the Ziwatneo, what happens the next day, the Andy and Red question. Like, what do you think happened? Like, where do you think Bob is six months from the end of this movie? And where do you think Diane is? Do you think Bob is still sober? And do you think Diane is still alive like what do you what do you think is the destiny of these two people going forward after this movie's over yeah that's that's a really good question i think diane is just a lifetime drug user like she seems like i don't know but that it did make me think like we're kind of getting into the age where they start mixing drugs with different things you don't really know Mm -hmm. why is that why the heather graham character died because no, because she, she she ODs on the Dilaudid. Oh, and that was like extra yeah. strong stuff, right? Because they talk about that ahead of time. They're like, "Hey, don't use this stuff. You can't handle it." Yeah. yeah. So that so yeah, and I don't know how much you know, how much you want to know about the drugs they're talking about. So Dilaudid um, hydromorphone is it's a form of morphine, but it's about four to five times stronger. It's you know, so it's it's four times stronger than even pure morphine. Um, and then morphine is like 10 times stronger than like oxycodone would be like Whoa. a modern drug. 
drug that we have today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these are really strong. And then, I mean, even that is like another order of magnitude or, or you know, five times stronger than something like hydrocodone, which is um, a derivative from uh, codeine. Uh, right. I think I have that right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So if, you know, if she was used, you know, if, if she's kind of like the, the, the newcomer to the group, if she was using, you know, used to using codeine or small, small doses of oxycodone, and then she gets her hands on this dilaudid and doesn't know how to use it properly. She could very easily kill herself, which is what she does. Yeah. Wow. What about you, Sean? Where do you think Bob ends up? Where do you think Diane ends up after this movie's yeah. over? Um, hmm, that's interesting. Well, it's interesting because one thing I had thought a lot about Bob. I hadn't given any thought previously to where Diane heads up, and maybe about- that's a comment on uh, on Kelly Lynch's performance. But uh, <laughs> what about Bob? What about Bob? Um, so that's interesting. So I do think I'm going to say six months later, Bob's okay. Um, Bob does eventually relapse because junkies do. They either relapse or they die. I mean, you give them enough time. It's, it's a hard thing. You have to really want to, and not that you can't clean up, but you have to really want to. I mean, these, these opioids are really, um, insidious. Um, and it's unfortunate. There's a lot of situations where it's, the best answer we have for pain where, you know, what are you going to do? It's either that or live in pain for, for a lot of people. And that's, that's a shame, but um, uh, especially for long time use, it, it really becomes part of your body. And there's a reason they call it a fix. Cause you're, it's not, you're, you know, you reach a point where you're not doing the drug to get high. You're doing the drug just to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when you're really deep in that addiction. So I do think eventually he relapses, but Six months later, I think he makes a, a decent go with this. Um, I know there's some series, and I, I'd be interested to get you guys' takes on this. Um, there's some people think, or the, you know, some opinions of the film that think Bob relapses right away because he makes a comment at the end. He's he's you know he's been shot. He's in an ambulance. He's going to the hospital, and he makes a, he makes well two comments that make people think he he goes back to using. One, he makes a comment that at this point they're basically taking him to the biggest pharmacy in town. Um, you know, at that point, you know, a hospital is going to have more drugs and more opiates than anywhere else other than, you know, the drug factory. Like, so they're they're taking him to the, the biggest score. And then the other comment, he, I forget, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he says something when he says, like, the hat, the hat shot him. Um, like, he makes a comment that basically, you know, there was a hat on the bed. He mm. gets this hex, he gets this run of bad luck. And there's some people interpret kind of that final scene that he's saying, like, he's paid his debt to the hat. Like, the hat was going to impose this hex, you know, this bad luck. And getting shot is, like, he paid his debt. So, like, once, and, like, so it was the hex that inspired him to think, well, I can't do this anymore. I got to get clean. And now getting shot, he's paid the debt. So now he's free to go back to the life. So some people have said, Oh, you know, he 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 suffered enough. He's paid his debt to the hat. He's free of the hex, and so he's going to go immediately back to you know go back to using immediately. Um, but I I I think um, I think like six months. I think he makes a decent run of it, but then he does eventually relapse. Um, so yeah. So what do you? What do you I think? would say two things. I'll just maybe I'll just say one thing first, and then you, Marsh, you can go. I mean, if I were him the hospital would be the last place I would try to score drugs again, because the last time, like the, the, the action scene in this movie is when they try to hit that other hospital. And that's when he has that, like 
you know, kind of fight scene in one of the rooms with those two, uh, you know, renicops or, or doctors, I can't really tell, like hospital security come try to get him. Um, and that's when like everything goes to hell for them. So mm-hmm. like, I think if anything, he probably, that's not where he's going to want to try to go back to again. If, if, if that's yeah. what was on his mind, what do you think? Marcus? Um, well, I mean, if the man gets shot, they're going to need to give him some drugs to kind of mm-hmm. help him with the pain. So I think he's yeah. down a slippery slope already. Yeah. I was interesting in this movie that he gets cleaned up and then he's, you know, living this life at the machine shop. <laughs> they, they don't show any part of that getting clean, you know? So mm-hmm. it, in a way it's like sometimes portrayals of drugs and drug use are really like a PSA for, Hey, don't do this. Cause it's going to be terrible to try and clean yourself out of it. But they really skip that part. And, mm-hmm. you know, but- he's, he's more like, okay. And kind of this romanticized version of like a guy that can go out and score drugs and have it all together. And, you know, that, the whole scene where the neighbor tries to come over and score some drugs from him. And he like bullies the neighbor, that little smaller guy, Oh yeah, but, yeah. but they don't show us any of the really dark parts about trying to get clean after you've been a drug addict and like what you were talking about, how the body just yeah. kind of rejects all life in order to get it back. So when you say they don't show him getting clean, are you talking about they don't show him going through withdrawal? You withdrawal, mean like biologically? Detox, yeah. Um, that's they, nasty. They, they do show him like going to his support group. Yeah, but this is like, they, it's all the chemical imbalance yeah, has to yeah. get reworked somehow. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they kind of touch on it very briefly when, uh, during that scene where he's like doing the intake, he's getting interviewed for this halfway house or the rehab or whatever. And he talks about, you know, guys like me don't come here. Guys like me either, you know, they go clean on their own or they go, you know, or they're, or they're in jail and that's why they can't score. But he, yeah, they don't go into what does that mean when you just, when you're a serious addict and then you're just forced to quit cold Turkey and then go through withdrawal on your own. Yeah. yeah they, they don't show it. They don't skip out. And you don't even know. Cause you look at someone like Bob and you're like, not a lot of education, not a lot of skills other than being a, a you know, a thief. Like he may have just ended up that could be in his life, even without the drugs, where he just has this, uh, you know, mundane uh, routine job in a, in a machine shop where he's just drilling holes. And then he's got, you know, one room in a flop house. Like, yeah, you kind of think like that could that could have been his destiny, even without the drugs. But maybe he did go to a methadone clinic. And I wonder if like you switch from opioids to methadone if you don't have a bad reaction i don't know that much about it the other thing i was going to say is that i and we haven't talked very much about this this whole kind of section with tom the priest the Mm -hmm. william s burroughs character yeah i actually i read a a review um i think it was the roger ebert review who gave this movie four stars okay raj um and he was talking about how the character of tom the priest is, is almost like an angel of death or it's like death or something mm-hmm. like that. I think it matters that Bob gives the bag of drugs to this guy, Tom, who he clearly knew from his childhood. And like, he's sort of this, this lifelong junkie as well. And it, it almost seems like giving him the drugs is his way of saying like, you know, this 
part of my life that you and I were both part of a long time ago is like over for me now. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. Maybe I just, just, this is just like wishful thinking for me on Bob's behalf, but I don't know. I think he, I think maybe I think he makes it. Hmm. Now, do you know that the original ending, um, I, I think it was intended like he dies. Like they weren't going to show him uh, dying, but I, I listened to uh, actually it was the commentary track. It's the, the, the comment, the DVD commentary track from this film with uh, Matt Dillon and Gus Van Zant is like out as like a podcast. I was actually searching oh. in my, in my podcast app, I was searching for podcasts. Like I wanted to listen to like some other reviews, what people had said about this film. And I came upon the DVD commentary track. And um, yeah, Gus says, if I remember correctly, they were going to have like the light turn out in the ambulance. We were going to see like a, a, a dark ambulance driving away to symbolize that Bob dies. Mm. So that was like the original ending was kind of like wow. the hint that Bob dies, but they, yeah. So it gets, but they didn't, they didn't, I don't think they don't do that. It doesn't do that in the film. So yeah, he, this, he doesn't die at least right away, but uh, yeah. And that I think would have, that, that would have certainly given the, mo- that would have certainly given the movie a much different yeah. tone to the end of it. Cause like the movie starts and ends with the same event. Like right. It's one of those him in yeah. the ambulance. And then he flashes and then we see why he flashes back to what led up to that point. And then it gets to that. So, yeah. So maybe, maybe this is sort of the best question to close on. And the, that fact that you brought up now has got me, got my head turned inside out. Like, what is this movie trying to tell us? Like by watching this movie, like, what am I supposed to like, what is the, what is the ultimate message that this movie is trying to get across? Yeah. I mean, I think it is, I don't know if it has a message other than like this, these people exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like doing, if you made this movie today with, you know, keeping it as same as, as the same, as much as you could with the same script and the same scenes and you shot it the same way, but you made it in, you know, the 21st century or the 2020s, then it would obviously be the, the, the message would obviously be the evil of the drug companies that push these opiates out there and, and bribe doctors to overprescribe these opiates that get people hooked and force them into this life. And, and um, you know, that would be kind of the message that, that, you know, Bob and Diane, Nadine, like these people are victims, but the film as it is made in 1989, I think it's kind of neutral. It's just saying, this is a life. These people are out there because it's, um, and I think it's pretty neutral on Bob. Like he's our protagonist and I root for him. I, well, I like him at the end and, you know, kind of hope that he gets clean. Um, but I, it does show it like, he's not a nice guy. I mean, I guess they don't show him hurting anybody. I guess, you know, he's just stealing from businesses that are supposedly insured. So you can kind of say, well, it's just a victimless crime or, you know, they're not, you know, holding people up or, or killing people. Um, you know, there's no physical violence, but well, other than he, he does slap Dave around, but um, I, I feel it kind of shows Bob is just sort of a neutral character. Like it, it, he's not a nice guy. He's not a good guy. He's ripping people off. He's stealing. Um, but yet it's still, I feel like it portrays him in a light where I find him likable. So I think it's kind of a, a neutral point of view, just saying, Hey, this is a life. This was something that exists. And, and here it is. Yeah. Marcy, what was yeah, what your, did you think? What, what do you think is like the message that this movie the message of this movie. Well, I I do agree with Sean. I don't think like it has a strong 
thing that it's trying to tell us. Like, it's not a don't do drugs message. It's not a necessarily do drugs message because although he's kind of like a cool person ish, I mean, it doesn't glamorize the life at all. They get stuck in these disgusting places and they have annoying neighbors that are just trying to get their high and they die and that kind of stuff. They're always on the run. So, I mean, in some, some movies it very much glamorizes drug use. And so I think Sean's right. Like, I think like just kind of a portrayal of people existing. Very good. Um, we've got some other things to talk about as far as this movie goes, but in terms of the movie itself, anything else that we haven't had a chance to touch on yet? Uh, Sean, you said you came with notes. Is there anything else you want to make sure we get a chance to touch on yeah. before we uh, uh, talk? Um, we move on to some other segments? Yeah, I guess two things. One thing really quick, I just want to say, I, I do think you had a good point, Marcy, about Bob going to the hospital at the end. I think, again, comparing times that nowadays their medical community is much more aware of the issues of um, of opioid addiction, and they may ask him, they may be sensitive. I'm trying to think, I, I recently had some surgery. Um, and it was like, yeah, they were, they were like, before prescribing opium, one that, or not opium, but, but opioids, you know, as, as a painkiller, um, they're very careful with how much they prescribe, prescribe and the dosage and how many refills you get. Um, but also sensitive to like knowing that not everyone can take these drugs, that some people will have a history that says like, no, I, I need to not, you know, uh, you know, not take any form of opioid just because it's, it's too dangerous. But, um, but, you know, back in, well, certainly not, you know, not in 1989 when this was made and, and not in 1971, when it was set, they wouldn't think of that at all. They would just be like, oh yeah, someone's been shot. They're in pain. Here's a painkiller. They wouldn't ask, are you an addict, you know, or is there any reason why we shouldn't give you this? So yeah, that's that's a very dangerous place for a recovering addict to, to be sent to a hospital. Um, so they, yeah, that was a, that was a good point uh, by Marcy. Um, and I think the, the my last main thing, and I don't know if if um, if you don't have a lot of experience with this film or with um, various opioid and, and painkilling drugs, you may not have much to say. But one question I I always wonder when I see this film. So at the end, Diane drops off this bag of of drugs, sort of this farewell gift to to Bob. Um, and Bob is kind of sticking to his his guns at that point in terms of cleaning up. So he delivers it to um, the old junkie to Father Tom. He hands it over. And Father Tom immediately dismisses most of the pile. He he pushes it aside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um he says, this is, this is for squares. It's not even like his, not, it's not just not his preferred drug. It's he looks down on the people that do these things. So he says, you know, this is, this is for squares. Never touch the stuff, but this 116th of dilaudid. So dilaudid is that, um, again, that thing that's, that's four times uh, more potent than morphine. So that's, that's the good stuff. And that was the stuff that killed um, Nadine that she OD'd on. So we know, we know what father Tom likes, what he considers a good drug. And I always wonder, like, I'm dying to know what, what's the stuff that he doesn't do. Um, and <laughs> you you either you do like Marcy, do what you... <laughs> did you get, could you pause the movie and like, check it out? You know how you can do that nowadays and like frame by frame, see if you could see any of the things. Yeah. I, I tried. I, I I couldn't read any of the labels, yeah. and I don't know enough about 
kind of the the drugs of the time of like i'm sure there was some like if you knew like just from like the shape of the container like certain bottle types you know certain things come in a brown bottle certain things are in a clear bottle something you know some things are you know pills in a tube versus liquid uh I'm, i'm sure someone could tell i yeah i couldn't I couldn't tell enough. It wasn't clear enough to read a label, and I didn't recognize mm. just from the shape. Um, Do we know at the time if, like, are quaaludes something that you would get from a drugstore, or is that just an illegal? Just from the things, the drugs that they mention in the course of the film that we know Diane and, and Bob were doing. What stuff? Um, what stuff do you think? Uh, you know, Father Tom would be for the for the squares. Do you think a lot of these? Um, like they're stealing from drugstores because there's not necessarily a street market for things like heroin and opioids at that time. Mm-hmm. Like what, what do you think yeah. the street drugs are at that time? Oh, heroin. In in 71, I would guess it's heroin and crack. No, like heroin, no. I don't know. I mean, I, like co- certainly cocaine co- was around. Yeah. Coca- but I mean, even in the early seventies, was cocaine really a big thing? I would assume in the early seventies, when this movie is set, it would be heroin and mm-hmm. um, like the the psychedelics. But you wouldn't be able to steal psychedelic drugs from a drugstore. Oh right, yeah, those yeah. those never had a like a a medical use. So, well, speaking of the good stuff, anything else, Marcy? Do you have anything else you want to make sure we talk about about this cinematic classic? I've really enjoyed talking about this movie. Honestly, I've enjoyed the conversation about this movie about 10 times more than I enjoyed the movie itself. Agreed. Um, Sean, you got anything else before we get to our next segment? Uh, just, I I really love this film. Um, I, I hadn't watched it. It had been well over a decade since the last time I saw it, like sat down and watched it uh, beginning to end. And also it's 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 not the kind of film it doesn't get a lot of, it doesn't get rerun a lot on, you know, like the, the movie channels like HBO or, or the... Um, you know, Turner classic movies. I don't know why, but it isn't. So it's not something I come upon often that it's just happened to be playing. But uh, yeah, so I've, I've watched it twice beginning to end in the past week. I'll probably watch it again um, mm-hmm. in the near future. Um, I, yeah. We're, and, yeah. we're, I, I'm happy to reconnect <laughs> you with. So th- yeah, thank you for, uh, you know, kind of giving me an excuse to watch and talk about this, this film. Cause I, I really enjoyed it for, I enjoyed it enough for the three of us. Okay. That's well, that that's good. I think, I think if you add up the three of us, we have, we have one really satisfied customer. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's talk about some other things as we usually do for these movies. Um, we just have a couple more, uh, aspects of the movie to touch on um, all in good fun. So Marcy, our next segment, which I've been dying, I told you I found something I was dying to share with you, but I wasn't going to do it until we Yay. got on the pod, which is our, our, our edition of the cruise and pit. So Sean, this is where we like to talk about what, what food or drink you should probably pair with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with the cruise, which is the drink, which is named in honor of uh the last barman poet, Tom Cruise. Um, so Marcy, I found a drink for you. Um, mm. if, because I know that you're sort of, you're exploring the world of, of cocktails now. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is, this is a very entertaining sounding cocktail that I would, I'd be so impressed if you go into a bar and try to order this. Uh, but it seemed appropriate given the subject of the movie, it's called the crack baby. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
So, but listen, I think you might like this um, because it actually sounds very similar to something we had last year. Um, it's a mixture of one ounce of champagne and four ounces of passion fruit liqueur. Is that it? Yeah. So basically, it's like a Bellini with passion fruit instead of whatever it is they make Bellini mix out of. <laughs> um, you That's just you, peaches. You put them both in a chilled shot glass and garnish with some orange peel and off you go. There you go. That's that's a crack baby. Wow. All right. Um, it was invented. So the part of the reason why I love this story um, is, or I love this drink, is the story behind it. It was invented at a bar in Kensington called Bougies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the, it, it is reported. So Kensington, England, it is reported to be the favorite drink of our own Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton. Oh, interesting. So apparently she and uh, Prince uh, William would uh, go out on the town and she liked to order herself a crack baby. <laughs> <laughs> so Marcy, name aside, does that sound like a good drink for you? I don't like passion fruit super much. Oh. So, and what was the liqueur again? It's passion fruit liqueur plus champagne. Oh, champagne. Oh, I see. Uh, Well, I do think I like champagne. That stuff goes right to my head um, in a fun way. So I, I would definitely try it for sure. What about you, Sean? Are you up for a crack baby? Um, Yeah. I've never had passion fruit liqueur, but I'll I'll try anything once. I Very would never want to order that, though. That's just an awful yeah. phrase. <laughs> I bet that so Kate, sad. I bet that Kate felt like just such a such a subversive renegade to like be dating the future heir to the throne and just be able to walk into a bar and say, "Give me a crack, baby." Ugh. You know. Ugh. All right. Fair enough. Well, let's move on to the pit, which is where we talk about the food that we would pair with this movie. Marcy, why do we well, call it the pit? Like... So the, the the pit part of this is because um, in Brad Pitt movies, he just eats everything in eats very everything. few bites. He's just a monster eater. Yeah. So amazing. So let's talk about food. I think, uh, you know, sometimes I try to find like a food that they're eating in this movie. But you know what? Is it possible that we watch these people like for several weeks at a time and never see them eat anything? Yeah. I kind of get the sense that we don't ever see them eat, which kind of seems like a good director's choice for people that are stoned, that they just don't have mm-hmm. time to take care of themselves. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm forgetting something. Um, but what I did give, so for, for the two of you, I found an article, it's called the, the 25 Greatest Stoner Snack Foods of All Time, because it seems like the munchies is the obvious choice. For what food we should combine with this movie. Hmm. I'm not okay. going to read all of them to you. Um, but here's the top 11. Um, Marcy, I, I went to 11 because I wanted to make sure we included this one. So let me just read off the whole list. And then maybe you all could tell me in a hypothetical situation where you had downed some Dilaudid, which one, which one of these would be your go-to munchies food. So they are in order. Uh, 11, a Slurpee. 10, Top Ramen. Nine, bright crawlers. I don't know what those are. Eight, pizza rolls. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Seven, Doritos. Six, Cheetos. Five, combos. Four, Funyuns. Three, chocolate chip cookies. Uh, two, Ben and Jerry's half-baked ice cream. I guess that's a, a variety. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. number one, apparently there's something called munchy snack mix, which is just like all those things put um, together. So I would definitely pick the top ramen and. That 
well, let me just say, I probably ate it the last time 15 years ago, and I was so hungover the next day on a sodium bender that (laughs) I was really paying the price. But the eating Mm -hmm. of it was just so soothing and disgusting, and I loved the curly noodle part of it. Wait, uh, Marcy, according to my back of the envelope math, 15 years ago was when we were we were still happily married. Well, we're happily married now, but we were married then too. When were you eating Top Ramen? I just bought it one time. You might have been sometimes. Okay. Sometimes when you're not home, I might eat foods that are weirder and less appropriate for my body. Okay. You might have you might have left and I might have been like, I just want to eat this Top Ramen like I'm still in college. I didn't mean to lasso you with the lasso of truth there and make you overshare. That's okay. Sean, what about you? Yeah. What is your mun- what is your munchies food when you're stoned? <laughs> hypothetically, um, of course. Hypothetically, of course. Um, yeah. So something easy is good. Like like you know, chips and salsa or you know, chips and dip, something like that. Um something, you know, sweet is good. So like cookies are good, uh, like a rice crispy treat is really good yeah um now the thing is you you reach a point where um where you eat you may not be able to cook unless you cook often unless it's something where like you know you've habit formed you know the kind of thing you can do in your sleep or or you know while 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 high um then then you probably don't need to do stuff and then also if you don't want anything that involves sharp objects so then you're not like carving a turkey or anything you know you don't want a sharp (laughs) knife um so I go like peanut butter and jelly is a good one because Ooh. it's, you know, if you have the ingredients, it's, um, well, it's, you're likely to have the ingredients. It's, there's nothing like milk. There's nothing that's going to go bad right away. Um, and jelly, if it's unopened, doesn't even need to be refrigerated. And, and you know, if it's bread, you know, if you buy bread, like mass produced with preservatives, it lasts a while. So it's, it's stuff you're likely to have around. Um, it doesn't necessarily involve cooking and maybe, you know, unless you want to toast the bread, even that's not, you know, too much. And then there's no sharp knife involved. It's really easy to make. It's really satisfying. You get, you know, you get some protein with the peanut butter. It's something that kind of sticks to you. It'll, it'll, it'll satisfy. It'll make you feel like you ate something. So, um, uh, yeah, I'd say peanut butter and jelly. I love so, that okay. idea. That's I a really healthy just, choice. Marcy, I might pick... just twist it into a fluffer nutter, though. Oh, oh you know, man. Uh, Mar- Marcy, I will tell you, marshmallow fluff was higher up on the list, and I just didn't go that deep into our oh, my best God. Foods. So do uh, you think a fluffer nutter sandwich for you? I, I'm going to, you know, I have one more advisee um, meeting this year, and what I'm going to do mm-hmm. is get some white bread some i think i need to get sun butter because one of my kids is allergic to peanut butter and fluff and i just bring it in for my students yeah you you did pick the one thing on that list that requires preparation and like (laughs) boiling hot water (laughs) yeah Yeah. are you sure you want to deal with those things when you're out of your mind you're yeah yeah i I might switch around to the fluffer fluffer nutter seems like yeah Yeah. all right let's yes so let's turn our attention to the parents' corner, which is where we talk about whether <laughs> Marcy, whether we would let our children watch this film. Um, this movie's yeah. rated R. Um, for the first time ever, Marcy, in the history of our podcasting, this this movie not reviewed on Common Sense Media, which is our go-to place. So I have no idea what age range um, would be appropriate. I looked at the IMDb content ratings. 
And they seem like the only area in which they seem to have a significant amount of concern is guess what? Alcohol, drugs, and smoking shock. Um, like, I don't know. There, I don't think we would have to worry about it, Marcy, because our kids would be like out of no. the room five minutes into the movie. Yeah. Um, but like, what would be the age at which we would feel like this would be uh, a movie that like kids could handle? You think uh, Ben late, could handle late, this? Late teens, maybe. Late teens. You, like, yeah. do you think Ben would be able to appreciate this movie? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Late late teens, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. That's a that's a good. Time. I think in, in some in some cases, like maybe this one, you have to have a broader appreciation for the art form like beyond that this is just entertainment but Mm -hmm. like looking at it in from a different perspective and i think once you're able to do that as a you know a consumer of media it might be appropriate maybe that's why i'm having such a hard time getting into this movie (laughs) i would say like it doesn't there's not a lot of action it's you know it's it's setting a mood it's it's introducing you to these characters they don't necessarily do a lot or do a lot of things that are interesting um so beyond the, the like, you know, yeah, the, the the drug use that you don't necessarily want a, a younger child to see, like they just may, yeah, they just may get bored and, and you know, they'll, they'll be on their phone and um, whatever yes. it is kids do on their phones these days. There would be a lot of, uh, a lot of Snapchat going on if our older <laughs> son was forced to watch yeah. this movie. I don't want to spend too much time in this section, but I do want to read, Sean, I want to read you something that I read to Marcy when I was doing my prep for this episode. Under the category in the spoiler section, under frightening and intense scenes, I just want you to explain this this quote to me. It says here, the scene where the gang finds Nadine dead on the floor, parentheses, it is presumed she had heart failure due to some drugs, is very sad and can cause animal lovers to cry. <laughs> explain. <laughs> I don't understand. What is that? Why do animal lovers think that Heather Graham uh, having overdosed on Dilaudid is something that's <laughs> terribly upsetting? An animal. Well, because she wanted to get the dog. Uh-huh. She wanted oh. to get a dog. Oh. So, so and really... The rest this... of the gang wouldn't let her. Oh. Uh, you know what? That that doesn't really make wow. sense, but I see where you're coming it does from. Not... Yeah, you got to have a very it's all I got. line to I get there. I forgot about that. <laughs> all right. Because Heather Graham is an animal lover, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm grasping. I don't know. I found that to be very amusing when I read that. Mm-hmm. Um, Mars, let's talk about, so we talk, let's talk about eye candy sometimes. And we haven't really talked about Kelly Lynch's appearance in this. And we made a living of doing that when we were talking about Roadhouse. So do you have any thoughts about her wardrobe or appearance uh, hmm. Feel free if you want to to comment on her little strip tease, but you don't have to. If you oh right, oh geez, um, you know a lot of it didn't stand out for me. Like there wasn't outfit after outfit of like gingham or crazy lace or anything like that. Um, I I did think like that strip teasey kind of moment was like one of her more genuine moments where she felt like she was kind of acting in a more natural way than in the rest of it. So I actually kind of liked that scene. Um, and I, I don't think that her hair was distracting. I don't really remember it bothering me. 
like it did in Row House. Like Roadhouse, like every single look she had, except for a couple, were just got really under my skin. It's funny that it's like the same year. I guess they couldn't afford hairspray when they were making this movie because, like, <laughs> yeah. her hair is not blown out at all. Um, Sean, what did you think about? We'll just focus on Kelly Lynch because that's who we talked about when we were talking about Roadhouse. Yeah. In terms of how she looks in this movie compared to Roadhouse, she looks she looks good. I think she looks natural in terms of what you know what that person is supposed to look like. She's not too glamorous. Now she doesn't go. Um, you know, she's not um, Charlize Theron in Monster. Like, she doesn't go full-on ugly, but she isn't someone that you look at and you're just like, oh, I can't believe this, you know, beauty, this per- person who looks like a beautiful beautiful Hollywood actress is, you know, traveling around the, you know, tra- traveling around the countryside with, you know, a bunch of drug fiends. Like, it's, she she kind of fits the part. So it's, 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 a, it's a naturalistic look, I, I thought. I agree. Um, okay. Uh, just a couple more things. Um, we do like to talk a little bit about the, the soundtrack and score, um, that we find here. I was really happy to see that Elliot Goldenthal, um, is behind mm-hmm. the soundtrack of this movie. Cause I know his work. Um, I know him best from the movie heat, um, which Marcy, I think I remember when we were watching this movie, I was like, I was trying to sort of like see if I could say, well, like I was trying to find parallels between this movie and Heat with Heat being obviously like a much better and more sweeping version. But Elliot Goldenthal was one of the things that um, I, you know, connected those two movies together. He's an Academy Award winner. Um, He won his Academy Award for the movie Frida, um, that biopic with uh, what, Salma Hayek. Mm -hmm. Um, And he... Uh, that movie was directed by his longtime partner, uh, Julie Taymor. Marcy, have you ever heard of Julie Taymor? No. She's um she's best known for the musical The Lion King. Oh, that's great. She's the, she's the creator of of The Lion King. Um, but but you know a couple of other his other movies that he's well known for. He did two Batman's. He did Demolition Man, uh, Interview mm-hmm. with a Vampire, um, and then that Johnny Depp movie Public Enemies. So I thought this, I thought the score for this movie was okay. I, as usual, don't remember. Yeah, I know you, you don't, you don't stand, you're not <laughs> stepping out there on the score corner with me. No. Um, yeah. I thought it was really good. And it was something I didn't think about till sort of like looking into the film. Um, I don't like to think about the score. Like, I think it's one of those things. If you notice it, it's bad. Like it's just supposed to support the action and what you're seeing. You're not supposed to think, you know, be thinking about it. And um, and I don't like, I didn't really think about the score. I had to like purposely think, okay, now I'm going to listen to what's going on. And, and cause I think it does, it does the job it's supposed to do. It's supposed to not be noticed, but it's supposed to support the, you know, the, the, like the scene and the actors that you, that are our front that you are supposed to notice. So, um, um, so I thought that was good. I noticed like some on the, the, the soundtrack, um, a couple things. Um, one, I just, I, I like the use of the Israelites. Um, by Desmond Decker. That's just, yeah. uh, one of my, it's a, it's, it's a, one of my favorite songs. It's a good song. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I also noticed, um, they used to have, uh, put a little love in your heart, um, which I wondered if that was sort of a nod to, uh, to Bill Murray and Scrooge. Uh, those are the song. two, those are the two. So like, I wrote down a couple of songs from the soundtrack. Those are the two that stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never heard that song, the Israelites before. Um, 
and uh it's it's certainly it i think that it's i think it's well placed in this movie and that it's it's sort of catchy but kind of insubstantial and it just mm-hmm. is sort of like it feels like the kind of song you would enjoy listening to like if you were stoned yeah um so and then yeah put a little love in your heart i forget, <laughs> I forget when that is being used in the movie is that the striptease song that might be they're in that they're in that room. It's like after I think it's like the first score we see. It's like playing on the radio or the TV. It's like just before the cops come in and they tear the place apart looking for the drugs. It's it's I I think it's diegetic. I think like it's you know it's it's playing on a radio in the scene just when the when the when the cops first bust in early in the film. Yeah, I think so. But this too. is also this is this is not. Um, you know, this is not Scorsese. This is not Goodfellas or something. One of those films where, like, the you know the the soundtrack is is carefully curated and goes along with the film. Like, it's um, there, there's some good musical choices, but there wasn't. It doesn't stand out quite in, in that way. But I mean, I read somewhere like all the songs that were chosen for this movie are authentic to you know the early seventies. Mm-hmm. That at least that yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, Marcy, what did you think about like the 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 songs in this movie? I can't remember any of them. Sorry, I can't participate in this part. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Um, okay. Well, last thing uh, before we get out of here um, is uh, where we go to the fix it shop, which is where each one of us maybe suggests one thing that we could do to make this movie better. Sean, you're our guest. I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot. Marcy, do you have something that you would like to change about this movie to make it better? Maybe many things. Pick one. Well, I think the thing that bothered me the most throughout the movie was just the choppiness of the dialogue and this kind of like, it just felt stilted in a way. So I think I would change that just to have these characters kind of connect with each other more and it feel a little bit more like when they traded lines with each other, that it was more of a dialogue rather than just kind of saying a thing and then waiting for somebody else to say the thing. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Um, Sean, do you have something I'm ready to go to, but um, yeah, well, first I want to say, um, this film, it's uh, well, 101 minutes. That's the, that is the perfect length. That is the length that a movie should be. So whatever changes you make, you, you cannot make it any longer than that. Um, uh, you know, Groundhog Day, 101 minutes, Drugstore Cowboy, uh, sorry, Casablanca, uh, uh, I think it's 102 minutes. Rocky Horror Picture Show is a hundred minutes. Like that is, that's the perfect uh, movie length. Once you get any longer than that, you're kind of going downhill. So um, I certainly wouldn't recommend adding anything that's going to make it longer. But um, going, you know, going back to, to Marcy's point, I think showing some of the effects um, of both, uh, you know, the, the effect of the drugs and the, um, you know, the withdrawal, you know, that that the, the process of Bob getting clean, kind of a little bit. Um, you know, getting more into the, the reality of, of that drug life. Um, maybe, maybe the only shortcoming I, I could identify. I'm sure they could have nipped and tucked five to 10 minutes out of some of the other parts of the movie, like that yeah. ridiculous plot with the cops and that dude who's like on a ladder and gets shot. Like, yeah, they, yeah. they could have taken oh, all that of that. Stuff. Weird. They could have taken all of that stuff out. And you're right, Marcy, right. they could have given us like five to 10 minutes yeah, of Bob, yeah. like, 
huddled in the corner of his of his uh halfway house just kind right, of like right. you know with a you know the the flop sweat and stuff like that um but that's not right, where well, i the, was gonna go yeah well, it, well and, and i sorry to jump in but that's what i was thinking of when diane drops off the drugs because talking about that the whole cop subplot that never goes anywhere. They have the scene where I forget the guy's name. They have the one cop talking to Gentry and he's like, we can just plant some drugs and, and bust Bob for possession. And then Gentry's like, well, no, I want him. You know, I want him for the robberies. I, I mean, I want him for something serious. I don't want him just on possession. And so he, like he mentions planting drugs and that's what made me kind of think, well, maybe, um, you know, if that guy busts Diane and then he, you know, he tells her plant these drugs on Bob so I can bust him. Like that would have then that would have kind of tied those that that cop subplot together and it would have gone somewhere. Instead, it goes nowhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, maybe that's another change. Like yeah. But anyway, so yeah, what would you have changed, Roger? Well, other than just making it better. If if I could wave a magic wand, I would have given the producers, the people making this movie, like I would have just given them another million dollars, which by the way, would have increased the production budget of this movie by about 50%. This is a $2.5 million movie, which even back in 1989 is not a lot of money. Not a lot of money. Um, I'm just checking now to see like what the what the budget for Roadhouse was. Budget. Wow. Roadhouse is a $15 million movie. So this, this is movie is this movie is six times Roadhouse is six times more uh in terms of but like and and with that million dollars, I would have said to Gus Van Sant, just like do four more takes of each scene. Like, honestly, yeah. if they t- if you told me that most of these scenes were done in like two or three takes, I would believe yeah. you. And maybe that's the case. Like, it's an independent movie. Maybe they just had to get every scene as fast as possible and like move on. Yeah. Um, and that's like in some of the scenes and, and one of the things they talk about in that the DVD comment- commentary that I, that I found, they talk about like the the. um the like home movie segments where they have the, like the, the characters filming each other. Like they just, they gave, they gave the actors, you know, some handheld cameras and just like, they didn't have a script or anything like here. We're just going to give you some cameras and, and film some stuff. And like that takes up a, you know, then that can probably all be cut. That's a bunch of the movie, uh, you know, a bunch of the movie that could have been trimmed to, to kind of um, fill in some of the other blanks. But uh, Sean, thank you so much for coming on. You've been an amazing guest. Um, before you go, can you just remind all of our listeners, all the places they can see and hear you on the internet? Yeah. So I've, I've done a few things. I've, I've covered a few films one minute at a time, the same way, uh, you covered Roadhouse. So I covered, uh, this is Spinal Tap, um, which is a, a brisk 83 minutes is a very short film. Um, but you can find that over at spinaltapminute.com. I covered Groundhog Day, uh, with my buddy Dave Palace, and that is at Groundhog Minute. Com. I've got uh, my current podcast is Next Scene Podcast, where we cover uh, pop culture, not just movies, but uh, all sorts of things, one scene at a time. And it's at nextscenepod.com. And all my stuff, everything I'm doing, uh, my podcasts, my hosting, my guesting appearances, I've got some hobby stuff that I put up at my uh, my main site is at catandshawn.org. So, uh, yeah, check that stuff out. John. And thank you again for having me, for, for giving me an opportunity to talk about this uh, this wonderful film. Oh, it's our pleasure. We we definitely needed to have someone who could come on to take the uh, to to champion this film. Yeah, because um, yeah. I think I think we had a better discussion. And I wish I could pretend that I made uh, that I decided to turn our food list up to 11 just for you. Um, but 
That was in honor of Spinal Tap. In honor of Spinal Tap. That was just a coincidence. Um, so that's that's it for us uh listeners thank you once again for listening to another episode of roadhouse minute uh please if you can rate and review us on your favorite podcatching app uh come and join us on facebook at the new double deuce we're also on twitter and instagram at, at rh minute and you can email us at dalton says be nice at gmail.com so remember until next time be nice bye now bye Look out.